Hey, at this time, uh, if you are a kid and you've checked in, um, you can head to the back. And if you're a child and you're here and you haven't checked in yet, you, you can still do that in the lobby uh, on your way. Uh, I just want to say thank you guys so much for um, being a church that does love families, loves kids, um, prays for them. Many of you uh, sacrifice extra time to serve with our kids, hold babies, uh, teach preschool lessons. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, it, means, it means the world. All right, uh, at this time, if you would take your Bible and open to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there's a rack of Bibles in the back. Feel free to go grab one. And if you um, don't own a Bible, uh, you could take one as our gift to you. We'd love for you to own a Bible. And this morning, you'll be helped um, if you have Colossians chapter 2 open uh, before you. Today, we're going to read Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Colossians 2, 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, in this book of Colossians that we've been working through, Paul is doing everything he can to focus our attention on Jesus Christ. And the reason that Paul's, Paul's doing that is because he knows how hard it is for us to remember. Whether we're new to Christianity, maybe you're not even a Christian yet, or maybe you're a new believer, or maybe you've been a Christian for decades. Paul knows how hard it is for us to remember that the recipe for Christianity is Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Uh, it's so hard to wrap our minds and hearts around this recipe because it forces us to completely trust Jesus. And in this world full of millions of options, it shrinks our options down to one. The Bible is clear over and over and over again that the recipe for Christianity is Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Uh, some of y'all know that my mom makes a killer salsa. Uh, this salsa is like legendary around here if you've, if you've, if you've ever had it before. Uh, she's done a really good job over the years of keeping that recipe a secret. But a few years ago, I talked her into giving me a copy of the recipe. Uh, I was actually surprised by how simple it was. And so I set about to begin to try to mimic uh, the, the, the recipe. 
Uh, now, I'm going to be honest. Um, every time I try to make my mom's salsa, it's just, it just doesn't quite come out right. You know what I mean? I mean, don't get me wrong. When I make the salsa, it's good. You know, it's good. But it couldn't pass for Gail Bird's salsa. Right. I, after talking with some other people who um, who have shared th this information with, we have come to the conclusion that my mom did not actually give me the 100% accurate recipe. That there's either something that extra that she's added, or there's some smidge of something that she she left off. So when I make the recipe, it's not. It's just not quite right. Guys, Christianity has a recipe. The recipe is Jesus Christ plus nothing else. And we know how delicate recipes are. If you just add a little something, if you just take a little something away, then the, the whole thing is completely different. Paul is writing to this church and he's warning them about people who want to come in and tamper with the recipe, about, about people who want to come in and, and just add a little something. They're not completely doing away with Jesus. They're not completely doing away with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They just, they just want to add a little something. They want to supplement a little something to Jesus. And Paul knows that the, to tamper with the recipe of the gospel is not just some trivial thing. To tamper with the recipe of Jesus Christ plus nothing else is a matter of life and death. So this morning, our goal is not just that all of us here would leave here today uh, believing that the recipe of Christianity is Jesus Christ plus nothing else. That's not really the goal. The goal is that we would actually feast together upon Christ alone. And so we're, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three benefits that flow to us through Christ alone. Three benefits that flow to us through Christ alone from Colossians 2, 16 to 23. Uh, the first benefit is that we are acceptable before God through Christ alone. We are acceptable before God through Christ alone. Uh, let's read verses 16 and 17 again. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul begins by teaching us about the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. And Paul is saying that there, there's all sorts of things in the Old Testament, people, places, events, laws, rituals, that are shadows of Jesus Christ. It's almost as if he wants to envision Jesus as this large looming figure, and as light passes from the New Testament back into the Old Testament, it creates this silhouette of Jesus. Uh, every October, uh, there's something that I just hate. I, 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 every October, this has happened every year that I've, I've, I've lived in my house, I go out in the evening, maybe to take out the trash or to, to um, you know, get some mail out of the mailbox or something, and all of a sudden I kind of, I get scared because I look over and it, it appears that there's a shadow that's coming down the road at me. But then I step back and I, and I look, and what I realize is that all it is is my neighbors put up his big, creepy, scary things in his lawn again, and they've scared me once again. They've scared me again. They've gotten to me again. But see, once you look down the road and you realize that it's just a shadow the shadow loses its power, right? Maybe at first you're afraid of the shadow, but then once you see that there's a different object that's creating that shadow, the shadow loses its significance, right? You can't talk to a shadow, you can't hug a shadow, you can't punch a shadow, and you also can't be punched by a shadow. You can't be mugged by a shadow. 
Once you realize that it's just a shadow, it loses its significance. And so Paul is saying that there were these laws about food and drink, and these laws about holidays, special days, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths in the Old Testament, and that in some way they resembled, pointed forward to Jesus, but they were just shadows. They weren't the real thing. They were just shadows that created a sort of silhouette of who Jesus was. But now that Jesus Christ has come, now that the real thing has appeared, the shadows have lost their significance. The shadows aren't important anymore because we have the real thing. We have the real Jesus. But I think for us to really get the point, uh, we need to know why it is that Paul doesn't want us to go back to these shadows. What's the big deal? You know, like what's the big deal with going back and dabbling with the shadows even after Jesus has come? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is what these shadows actually meant. That these different laws, about, these different dietary laws about what to eat and what not to eat, and these different special days, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths, they all represented something about being acceptable before God. The shadow that these rituals cast, that eventually Jesus fulfilled, was the reality that for anyone to be in God's presence, they must be pure and blameless and holy and separate. And so to go back to these Old Testament shadows, the problem with that isn't just about going back. It isn't just about dabbling with some shadow that's not real. To go back to the shadows would in in effect be to say that Jesus is not enough. In effect, it would be to say, yeah, maybe Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, but we also need something else. We need Jesus plus dietary laws and special holy days where we fast and where we consecrate ourselves to God. We need Jesus plus something else back there in the Old Testament. I want you to imagine that uh, six months after I got married to Allie, okay, six months after into my marriage, um, Allie comes comes in the door one day and she sees me on the phone and she kind of comes over and whispers, you know, hey, who are you talking to? And I whisper back one of my old girlfriend's names. Uh, Right, I know, I know. So I hang up the phone, hang up the phone, and Allie says, you know, what was that all about? Now, granted, listen, I just, especially because of this response, this is not a real story. Do we understand this? Are we clear? This is imaginary. This is made up. This did not happen, okay? So Allie says to me, you know, what's the deal? And I say, well, you know, babe, I mean, I love you. The last six months has, has been great, but there's just something missing in our relationship. You know, I, I don't want to divorce. I don't want to leave you. I just need uh, 20 or 30 minutes a day to talk to my old girlfriend to kind of to supplement what's missing in our relationship, to kind of add to what's missing in our marriage. Now, guys, how gross is that? How disgusting is that? How dishonoring would it be to my wife to say, look, you kind of measure up, like you're kind of enough for me, but I just need a little something extra to, to, to help me be satisfied in our relationship. When Paul tells us not to go back to the, these Old Testament rituals, he's not just saying, hey, these Jewish customs are bad or these Jewish, Jewish customs are, are in the past. He's saying for you to go back would be to say to Jesus, you're not enough. It would be to say to Jesus, look, I'm cool with you. I'm glad you died for me, but I need to add a little something. I need to supplement a little something 
in order to be acceptable before God. So you may be here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not tempted to go back to these Old Testament rituals. I'm, I'm not interested in going back and living according to the, the Old Covenant under Moses. That's, that's not a temptation for me. But what we have to realize is that the, the implication of this is so much broader. We should never believe that we have to make some sacrifice in order to be acceptable before God. Uh, we should never believe that we have to somehow clean ourselves up before coming to Jesus in order to be acceptable before God. We should never think that we have to set aside special days for fasting and prayer and sort of consecrating ourselves in order to be acceptable before God. The only way that anyone is acceptable before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. What he has done in his person, who he is, what he has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, it is enough. It is complete. As he said, hanging on the cross, it is finished. Now, maybe today uh, you're going to be in the car on the way home and you're going to be thinking to yourself, okay, I read in Paul that these food and drink things are over and that these festivals, new moon, Sabbath things, they're over. And yet, this morning, this, this will be after, when we, this, this will be what you're thinking when you leave. You'll be thinking, but we did this, this Lord's Supper thing where we, we ate some food and we took some drink. And then we, we watched some people get baptized, you know, this religious ritual where people get dunked under the water and then come back up. And we met on this special day called the Lord's Day, where every single week we set aside time and we come together. And by the way, some people actually call that the Sabbath. So are we going against what Paul's talking about? When we take our Lord's Supper, when we do our religious ritual, when we come and gather and set aside a special day called the Lord's Day, are we going against what Paul is saying here? Well, the difference between what we're doing today and what Paul was talking about with going back to the Old Testament shadows is the difference between a, a shadow and an appetizer. A shadow and an appetizer. Uh, when Allie and I got married, you know, we went around to different venues to see where we would have our reception. And, uh, you know, we went around some different places. We, we finally landed on one. You know, we put a little down payment down. And it was really great. The, the people who were doing our food invited us to come and actually do a taste test of the meal for our wedding. And so we arrive on that day and uh, you know, they give us the, some bread comes out and we eat the bread and some, some uh, you know, main course comes out and we eat it and a little sweet treat comes out and, and we eat that. Now listen, that experience we had, that taste test we had, it, it wasn't our marriage day. It, it wasn't that final consummated celebration that we would experience on, on our wedding day. But at the same time, that wasn't just a shadow of what was coming. I mean, when I, left, when I got in the car and left that day, there wasn't just air in my stomach, right? I actually ingested something. And I didn't just ingest something. I actually partook of the same meal that we would eat one day when we gathered together at our wedding and enjoyed that at our wedding. And that is how we ought to think of these uh, ordinances that Jesus has given us. They aren't shadows. They aren't empty uh, things that just point to something else. No, God wants us to see these as act and an actual foretaste that we're enjoying an appetizer of what's coming. That when we take the Lord's Supper, when we gather here on the Lord's Day, this isn't a shadow of the kingdom of Christ. This really is the kingdom of Christ. These things really do help us enjoy the real Jesus. Now, as quickly as I've said that, let me add this. Let me add this. These God-ordained ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism, gathering on the Lord's Day, these God-ordained things that God has, that Jesus himself gave, gave to the church, 
for us to celebrate him. They can be twisted and be administered in such a way that they do detract from Christ alone. If, for example, we teach that someone actually gets saved by going through the baptism experience, um, if we somehow believe that the, the cup and the juice sitting in the chair actually wash our sins away as we drink and eat, you know, if, we, if we believe that coming to church is about getting some brownie points so that we have something to barter with God about you know, during the week, right? we take these God-ordained uh, ordinances that Jesus has given us to remember Him, but we twist them and we can use them to detract from Christ and Christ alone. But that's not what these symbols are for. What these elements are for is for us to actually partake of now a foretaste of the kingdom that we will experience forever and ever. These elements are not trying to take away from the fullness and sufficiency of Jesus. They're trying to announce to us that Jesus Christ has done it all, that what he has done and who he is is enough. These things that we enjoy, are, they're, they're not shadows. They are the real thing, and we get to participate in them with joy and gladness. So the first benefit that flows to us from Christ alone is that we are acceptable before God. It's not Jesus plus, it's not Jesus and, it is Christ and Christ alone that makes us acceptable before God. Uh, the second benefit is that we grow spiritually through Christ alone. We grow spiritually through Christ alone. Verses 18 and 19 say, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So another way that we can tamper with the recipe of Jesus Christ plus nothing else is to insist upon the idea that there are then, after we come to Jesus, there are then these super spiritual activities that we must be, uh, partake in to grow in the Christian life. That there is the emotional, the ecstatic, the mystical, some grand next level of spirituality that we must tap into in order to grow in the faith. Uh, Paul points to things like asceticism, which means the severe discipline of the body. He mentions the worship of angels, which doesn't necessarily mean that we've now sort of written worship songs to angels or something like this, but it, it simply could mean just putting angels as a too high of priority in our Christian practice. For example, believing that we ought to pray to angels or, or believing that we ought to ask angels for help or something like this, when in reality, the one we should be praying to, the one we should be asking for help is Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the angels. And then Paul mentions visions. You know, the problem with visions is that they sound so supernatural and they sound so super spiritual that they end up giving someone else authority over other people who haven't apparently experienced the same kind of visions or experiences that they have. Um, outside of the church, these might be people who would say they are spiritual, but not religious. You know, th th there's a kind of air of pride that comes with saying that you're spiritual, but not religious. You know, what, what you're saying is, you know, I have a little spirituality in my life, but, but I'm not so primitive that I would actually do that organized religion thing like you people do. 
You know, I want a little spirituality to, to help me with my, my, my therapy and my emotions and being tapped, you know, with the universe, but, but I'm not so uncivilized that I would actually join myself to a group of people who submit to a book, you know, that would tell me what to do with my life. You know, I'm not that primitive or, or uncivilized. And then inside the church, we might, we might say that these are the experience seekers, you know, they want every song to last 16 minutes so that they can just repeat the same choruses over and over and over and over until they fall into a trance or, or something like this. Um, th- these people want, quote, deeper teaching, which by that they mean they, they find all sorts of weird hidden prophecies in the Bible, and they're, they're always going on about some special revelation that they've received from God, or, or they're talking about, you know, conspiracy theories and end times pre- predictions and these kinds of things. They're, they're not actually talking about the deeper teaching as it is found in the scriptures, They're talking about the deeper teaching as it comes from man's own imagination. And these churches are all about signs and wonders and healings and visions and prophecies. But listen, here's the key. That never actually preach the gospel. The temptation is to look at people and to look at churches like this and somehow think, maybe they figured it out. Maybe they've gotten to the next level. Maybe the super spiritual stuff is where it's it's at. But Paul is saying this, in reality, he uses, the, in, in the ESV, it uh, says sensuous mind, but Paul's point is that these people are actually enslaved to the flesh, that what they're after is just the next emotional high. What they're actually after is following their appetite so that they can meet the cravings of their flesh. But I want to um, try to illustrate this uh, using candy. Candy's sort of a big deal right now. Uh, it's, you know, all over the place in October. Uh, you know, candy is sweet on the outside, but in all actuality, candy has zero nutritional value. In fact, candy might have negative nutritional value. So while you put it in your mouth and it feels enjoyable and you get sort of a rush of, of excitement, it's actually hurting you more than it is helping you. And uh, most kids, if they're like anything like the kids I've been around, would happily eat uh, seven pieces of candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if they were allowed to. That if they were in control of their own diet, they would just binge out on candy uh, all day long. And so uh, a good parent will lovingly but firmly introduce for a child a well-rounded diet, right? The, the, the parent will introduce the, the, the meat and the vegetables and the potatoes. And, and while that, that might feel boring to the child, a parent knows that when it comes to eating and stay, staying healthy, what's more important is staying alive rather than being entertained, and so Paul is pointing at these super spiritual things, and he's saying, yeah, th- th- this, it's like candy. It-, it-, it looks good on the outside. It feels good on the outside. There might be an emotional excitement, an emotional spike to it. But on the inside, it's empty. On the inside, it is childish. On the inside, it's actually immature. Because it's not content to receive what is from God. It must go after what man can muster up, what man can, can do. And so Paul's saying that it's not actually being filled with the Spirit of God that produces these super spiritual experiences. It is actually running after the flesh. Now, as Paul moves into verse 19, we shouldn't be surprised that the recipe for true spiritual growth and maturity is Jesus Christ plus nothing else. That's our recipe It's our recipe for being acceptable before God, and it is our recipe for growing to maturity spiritually. Verse 19 says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth 
that is from God. So what does growing spiritually really look like? What does maturing in the faith look like? How does that process work? If it's not found in the ecstatic and the fanciful and the mystical, where is it found? Well, first and foremost, Paul is saying that true growth comes through Christ alone. He's wanting to us envision Jesus as a head, and he's wanting us to envision ourselves as body parts. And so for us to grow, we must hold fast to the head. We must cling to Jesus that the, the way we grow is through communion with Jesus, to stay attached to him. It's not that you start with Jesus at the beginning of your Christian life, and then you move on to something else. No, 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 no. Paul's saying you start with Jesus, and his whole point of this letter to the Colossians is you start with Jesus, and you keep on walking with Jesus. That is Christianity. So, so here's what Paul's not warning us against. Paul is not warning us against having an intimate relationship with Jesus. He's not warning us against getting swallowed up in our love for Jesus so that we express it in a joyful and an emotional way. That is not what Paul is warning us against. What he is warning us against is craving after the experience more than we crave after Jesus. To, to, to crave more after the emotional high than to crave after a consistent in, uh, simple communion with the Lord. Uh, a second thing I want you to notice in this little um, verse, in verse 19, when Paul's talking about true spiritual growth, is he uses the word nourished. Nourished. And I think this tips us off to the fact that the way we grow in the Christian life is a lot like how our physical bodies grow. Right? Human bodies don't zap forward with growth. Right? You don't, you don't, uh, you know, our, our house, we have the little thing up against the wall in the laundry room where we like to, you know, measure heights and that sort of thing. You know, if, if, you, if you went in there every single day and looked at your height and looked at your height and looked at your height from one day to the next, it would be the same. From one day, from one day to the next, it wouldn't appear that you're growing. But if you step back, you wait a year and you come back the next year after meal, after meal, after meal, after meal, then you see the growth. And what Paul's trying to show us is that true spiritual life, true spiritual growth in, in the Christian faith is not found in getting supernatural visions. It's not found in, in having an encounter with an angel. It's not found in the, the super spiritual. That true growth in the Christian life is daily, three times a day, enjoying the meal of Jesus Christ plus nothing else. That is, we cling to him and receive the nourishment day after day after day. Then we look back after a year and realize, wow, we've grown. We look back after five years, after 10 years, after 20 years of clinging to our head, Jesus Christ, and we realize that he's been nourishing us the whole time. A uh, third thing uh, we see that Paul mentions is that when a bunch of individuals get together who are all united to Jesus, if I'm united to Jesus and you're united to Jesus and you're united to Jesus, that means we're united together. In other words, our true spiritual growth happens as a part of the local church. The phrase that Paul uses, I love this phrase, is he says that we are knit together. That means our real spiritual growth is not found off in some closet somewhere by ourselves. Our true spiritual growth is not breaking off to go out into the woods by ourselves. Our true long-lasting maturing in the faith is found as we are knit together in the body of Christ. 
that God wants both our union with Jesus and how that creates a union with one another to be the thing that sharpens us, matures us, and grows us up in the faith. So this maturity, this growth, it's not an isolated project. It's a community project. And then finally, a fourth thing that we see about real spiritual growth, true spiritual growth, Paul teaches us is that real spiritual growth, it's not something we muster up. It's not something we do. It's not something we work ourselves into. He says at the end of verse 19 there that it, it is a growth that comes from God. And that means it's in God's timing. That means it's in God's way, according to God's prescription. We do get to participate in our growth. But our job, our part in our own spiritual growth is clinging fast to Christ. And then it's God who produces the growth. It's God who gives the growth in His time, in His way, according to His prescription. Guys, over and over and over again, the Bible is clear that the recipe for Christianity and the recipe for true spiritual growth is Jesus Christ plus nothing else. But how many times, how many churches have stepped away from Christ alone because they weren't willing to be patient on God's timing. Wanting to grow, wanting to get bigger, wanting to, quote, reach more people. We step outside of God's prescribed plan. We step away from the pure, simple Jesus Christ alone. We step away from focusing on Him, worshiping Him, and proclaiming Him as our means for growth. Not trusting that in God's time, in His way, He will grow us. So many times, Churches have gotten knocked off course. Maybe it was a good motive at the beginning. We want to reach people. We want to grow. We want to see more people in the kingdom of God. There can be a good motive there. But then it's this stepping away from God's ordained means. It's the infatuation with the candy that seems super spiritual, that seems like the next level, that robs us of what will bring true spiritual growth. But no, as we cling to Christ, as we hold fast to Him, what God has said is that he will both grow us as individuals and God has a plan for growing his church throughout the world. As we hold fast to Christ, God will fulfill his promise. So the second benefit that flows from Christ alone to us is that we will grow spiritually through Christ alone, not through fanciful visions, not through encounters with angels, not through the mystical, crazy, emotional but through a steady diet of Jesus Christ alone, God will nourish us individually and he will nourish this church. Finally this morning, the third benefit is that we break free from this corrupt world through Christ alone. We break free from this corrupt world through Christ alone. I want to start by just looking at verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Uh, if someone were to look at you, and they were to say, you're dead to me, what they would mean by that is that the relationship is over. Whatever past feelings, whatever past affection, whatever past desire that person had towards you, 
they're in effect communicating that it's all gone. It's all dead. It's all in the past. It's not carrying forward into the present or the future. You're dead to me. And what Paul wants us to see is that for the Christian, for the Christian, because of Jesus, when it comes to their relationship with the world, they are now dead to the world. There's been a break. For anyone who's put their faith in Jesus, there's been a break in their relationship to the world. They're dead to the world and the world's dead to them. Jesus Christ, who died and rose and established a new creation, Paul is saying, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're not of this world anymore. You're not of the old creation anymore. You are now a new creation in Christ. You are implanted into him, and you are now a citizen of his kingdom, not a citizen of the kingdom of this world. You're dead. You're dead to this world. You're cut off. You're separated from this world. So since that's the case, Paul is wondering why we would ever be tempted back into worldly thinking. Why would we ever be tempted to go back to the way of the world, if in Christ we're dead to the world. And specifically, this is what I find so interesting about this passage, specifically what Paul's pointing his finger at, he's saying, there's a, there's a way of trying to escape the corruption of the world that is actually worldly. There's a mindset, there's a way of thinking, there's a way of approaching trying to escape the world that is actually of the world. You know, there's plenty of people all over the world who aren't Christians who, who know that there's something wrong with this world, who know that there's something that they need to do to separate themselves or, or something that they need to do to escape this world. But Paul's warning is there is a worldly way of trying to escape the corruption of this world. Uh, one of the ways this has manifested itself over the years is with a uh, monk-like separation from the world. You know, in, in times past, there was people who would actually literally pick up their lives in, in society, go out to some, you know, remote area, and they would actually kind of build their own little safe society. It's away from everybody. It's away from all the bad stuff in the world. And they would uh, do like some of the practices that Paul's talking about here, this asceticism, this harming the body, and, and all sorts of hard self-discipline on themselves to, to kind of remove themselves from the world and keep themselves separate from, from what's going on. But see, what, what, what I re realize is that in our modern society, because of all the technology, it's actually easier than ever for just the average, ordinary, conservative family to take this monk-like approach to the world. That we actually can cut ourselves off from shopping at all the bad places. And we can cut ourselves off from spending time with all the bad friends. And we can cut ourselves off from watching or receiving or participating in any of the bad entertainment or bad books or, or bad stuff out there. That because of the technology and the, the, way, the world we live, we can keep our house right in our neighborhood and yet remain isolated from all the bad in the world. But the story that this kind of approach to life follows is, goes something like this. Uh, this approach says that we're all basically good. That kind of we come into this world and, and um, we're, we're pure and we're good. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest, guys. I mean, thank you, guys. I thank you so much for praying for my daughter today. Thank you so much for committing to care for not just her, but kids in this church. But I'm going to be honest with you guys. Guys, kids come into the world rotten. I love my daughter. She's precious, but she is a sinner. She is dead in Adam, her great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. We are all guilty in him. We're all dead in him. We all are born into this world with a broken relationship to God. Leighton needs God to save her. Leighton needs God to intervene into her life and awaken her heart 
to the gospel. And that's why we're standing up here praying, because that's what we want God to do. We're longing for him to rescue her. So, so in this false story, it teaches that people are basically good. And so what is it that makes people feel bad or do bad or think bad? What is it? It's your environment. That if you're basically good, but then you get put in a bad environment or, or, or the, the stuff around you is bad, that that's what sort of contaminates you. And it makes you, it makes you do bad things or think bad things or feel bad things. And so salvation, according to this story, is to have the self-will and the determination to create boundaries so that you keep all the bad stuff out. But see, where this goes wrong is what happens. Is it's not just bad stuff or bad entertainment. What, what, what you end up doing is you, you end up cutting off all the bad people. You paint yourself as the good guy, and you think of all the people out there as the bad guy, and you set up boundaries to keep separation between you. I, I encourage you, take some time this week, read through the Gospels, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Watch Jesus interact with the people. See him befriending sinners. See him dining with prostitutes. See him hugging tax collectors. And see him calling out religious Pharisees who want to be separate from all those bad people who created all sorts of crazy ideas about how to wash your hands, not because it's hygiene, but to wash your hands because a, a, a Gentile sinner touched that food, and now you've touched that food, and so you, you don't even want to get close to being contaminated by the bad people in the world. And so you're setting up all these boundaries, all these barriers, all this separation. And time and time and time again, Jesus says, what are you doing? This is not what God has called you to. This is not how you become holy in this world. See, you can, pull yourself up, you can pull yourself back. You can cloister up with all the people who are just like you. You can set up all these boundaries to all the bad people in the world. Here's the problem. You still have you. The greatest enemy to us in this life is not out there. The greatest enemy in our lives is in here. What's wrong with the world is me. And so I can pull away from everything. I can separate from all this bad. I can cut off all the people that I think are bad influences on me, and I still have me. And that's why in verse 23, Paul says, Look, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this is kind of a facade of wisdom. You know, we see people who've got this self-determination to cut themselves off. We see people who, you know, have found a way to kind of keep themselves out from all the contamination in the world. And, and, and Paul says, look, like, there's an appearance of wisdom there. Like, it appears like there's a nice and shiny exterior to that. But if you were to drill down from God's perspective and you were to actually get inside on, on the inside of that shiny facade, you would see that it's broken, it's corrupt. It is the world's approach to escaping the corruption of the world. It's the world's best idea for how we get away from all the bad stuff out there. And yet, Paul says, they are of no value. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the, of the flesh. Uh, here's a way to think about the approach to life like this monk-like mentality. Um, you know, say, say this week I'm, I'm driving home from work. I'm coming down my driveway, and uh, you know, Allie and Benjamin have run outside to meet me like they do sometimes. They're, they're, they're you know, down in the neighbor's yard waving at me, 
And all of a sudden, my car starts making this crazy, you know, motion and some awful, terrible noise starts, you know, screeching out of the car. And I barely sort of make it into the driveway. And I get, I get out of my car and Allie says, oh my goodness, you know, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do about your car? And I say, but babe, don't worry, don't worry. I've already made plans. First thing, thing in the morning, I'm headed to the car wash. So then a few days go by and uh, the car's clunking. It's, it's even worse now. You just, you know, just clunking down the road, making some terrible noise. And, and she comes up after I get home from work. She says, hey, babe, your car's not going to make it. You know, you got to do something. I say, babe, babe, don't worry. I made an appointment tomorrow afternoon to get a new paint job. No, my car doesn't need a car wash. And it doesn't need me to sort of ramp it up and pay a little extra for a paint job. That's, that's not what my car needs. The problem isn't external. What I need is I need somebody who can open up the hood, somebody who can go down on the inside, somebody who can actually transform the car where it's broken. And this is so many times how we approach our lives. We sort of automatically assume that when there's a problem in our life, a problem in this world, that it must be out there. It must be on the outside. It must be on the externals. But nine times out of ten, it's actually what's wrong with us. That we're broken. That we're sinful. That we are out of whack. And so what we need is to open our hearts to God and say, God, search me, know me. God, what I need is for you to shine the light of Christ into my soul, into my heart, and to fix me. God, I finally admit that, that what's wrong with the world is not out there. What's wrong with the world is me. Would you rescue me, Lord? Would you cleanse me? Would you heal me? I think Paul gives a helpful comment. Uh, in a minute, I, wanna, I do want to talk a little bit about what do we do, you know, if... if, if separating out from the world, if setting up all these barriers to all the bad stuff and bad people is not, is not the way to go, what do we do? But before we do that, I just want to draw your attention to one little phrase in verse 23. Uh, this is a helpful comment for understanding the bankruptcy of this worldly approach to escaping the world. The worldly approach to escaping the world. See, Paul calls it self-made religion. Self-made made religion. What, what question that ought to make us ask is, has this cutting off, creating separation, viewing ourselves as the good people and all those other people as the bad people, is that what God has asked of us? Does this come from us or does this come from him? Is this his plan, or is this our plan? In John 17, uh, Jesus is praying. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for people in the future who will place their faith in him. And I want, to hear, I want you to hear carefully what Jesus prays. This is John 17, 15 through 18. I, I wish we could just spend a lot of time in, in all of John 17. It's a beautiful prayer. But just these couple verses, I think, get at a little bit about what we're talking about this morning. Jesus praying to the Father, and he says, he says, I do not, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus is praying and he acknowledges that anyone who's placed their faith in him because of his death and his resurrection, anyone who's placed their, their faith in him, they are no longer of this world. They're no longer citizens of this world. They belong to his kingdom. They are a new creation in Christ. So he acknowledges that, but he says, just as you sent me into the world on a mission, I'm sending them into the world on a mission. See, the problem with separating ourselves, the problem with putting up all these barriers, the problem with painting ourselves as the good guys and all them as the bad guys is that it keeps us from being sent into the world where Jesus wants us. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. I think this is hilarious. Uh, you may not, but I think it's funny. This is the same guy, Paul, who wrote Colossians. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. This is what he says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, at that point, we're thinking, okay, like this is the Bible. Like, I, I, that makes sense to me. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. What's Paul saying? He's saying, as a Christian, I'm not expecting that you won't be around sexually immoral, swindlers, greedy, idolaters. I'm expecting that you will be around them. I want you to associate with them. The, the people I'm talking about, they're, they're not the people of the world that I'm telling you to separate yourself from. No, I, I'm expecting that because Jesus has sent you into the world, you will be around people who are sexually immoral. You will be around people who want to cheat you and take your stuff and who are greedy. You will be around people who don't worship God like you do that I'm expecting that you will associate with people because that's what Jesus did. Those are the people who became Jesus' friends. Those are the people who Jesus hugged his arms around and invited into the kingdom of God. So Paul's saying, no, no, no. I, I'm not expecting you to separate yourselves from them. I'm expecting you to run towards them with open arms and love and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to them. So to take this worldly approach to escaping the world, guys, to, to take the worldly approach to escaping the world is not Christianity. It is self-made religion. It's not God's idea. It's our idea. And keeping in line with uh, what we're talking about this morning, to separate ourselves from the world like this, to cut ourselves off from all the quote-unquote bad people who might contaminate us, it is to tamper with the recipe of Jesus Christ plus nothing else. It is to look at what Jesus has done in rescuing us from this world, in ripping us out of the old creation and implanting us into the new creation. And it is to look at that and say, that's not enough. I need Jesus plus my self-willed boundaries. I need Jesus plus my Pharisaism. I need Jesus plus keeping all the bad people away from my life. It is, in effect, to, say, to look at Jesus and say, I don't trust the power of your spirit in me to sanctify me. I don't trust that, that you've given me a resurrection power that can, as I obey you and as I put myself out there in the darkness, that, that there is a resurrection power that will keep me holy and blameless to the end. It is to attempt to do in our own strength what only Christ can do. So what do we do? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I thought this is what Christians were supposed to do. <laughs> You're telling, me the, you're telling me the exact opposite of what I thought I was supposed to do. What, what in the world? 
when we acknowledge that this worldly approach to escaping the world is bankrupt, here's what happens. It casts us upon being more and more dependent upon the body of Christ. It throws us into a need for close relationships with brothers and sisters who can help us see our blind spots, who can help guard us against actually going the way of the world. See, when we get thrust out by Jesus, sent out by Jesus into the world, Paul says in another place, we are like sheep among wolves. And so that means we need each other to be able to cling fast to Jesus, our head, to be able to hold fast to the one who can keep us pure, who can keep us blameless, whose spirit has will in us, sanctify us in truth, as he prayed in John 17. It throws us uh, away from our independent little attempt at being pure and holy, and it casts us into a life with one another where we're knit together and we grow spiritually. And then, obviously, it allows us to actually fulfill the Great Commission, to actually make disciples who make disciples, to be around the people who need to hear about Jesus. And then, here's the last thing I'll say. You need to come back next week. Um, you know, verse th- chapter 3 starts, if then, if then. So, Paul's not done. He's actually going to show us how to open the hood, how to pop open the hood and deal with what's going on in the inside. And so, um, yeah, come back next week to hear more about how do we live in this world where we're not of the world, but we also don't separate ourselves from the world. How do we do that? That's where we're going. Uh, In conclusion this morning, uh, there's something that I skipped over in our our passage. Um, There's two little phrases that I skipped over that I I just want to finish with. Verse 16 begins, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And verse 18 begins, let no one disqualify you. So apparently there were people in Paul's day, and there there will always be people, who will want to bully others into thinking that the recipe of Jesus Christ plus nothing else is not enough. There will be others who want to push and bully others into thinking that, that what's needed is something more plus Jesus. Jesus and Jesus and super spiritual. Jesus and some old religious ritual. Jesus and your Pharisaism. There will be people who want to push you and bully you and try to entice you, maybe even using the Bible, to try to draw you away from the purity of the recipe of Jesus Christ plus nothing else. So here's a couple thoughts on that. If anybody from this pulpit stage, whatever you want to call this, this spot, whether me or anybody else ever begins to bully others into adding something to Jesus, it is your job, church, to take us out. It is your responsibility, church. You actually have the power to vote any of us out of here. 
And if we start adding to Jesus, you kick us out. Because we will not tolerate dishonoring Jesus here. And if you're somebody here who is a bully, you're somebody who's constantly adding extras, you're putting yokes on people, you're adding extra things beyond what God says in his word to try to enforce upon people so that they think they need it to be acceptable before God or they need it to grow in their Christian life. If you are that kind of bully, you better watch out because we will not tolerate that here. And if you're somebody who has been bullied, there's other people who are trying to push you or trying to judge you or trying to disqualify you into adding something on top of Jesus Christ plus nothing else. You come to us. We will stand beside you. We will look at bullies in the face and we will say, you either repent or you get out. See, we are a body here. We've been knit together. And what we cannot tolerate is one body, body part harming another body part. That's not okay. What we cannot tolerate is one body part cannibalizing another body part. We won't stand for that here at this church. We stake our flag on Jesus Christ plus nothing else forever, for always. I want to invite you this morning to take out your communion elements that you have there. And uh, I just want to say, um, as we say many times, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you would say, I know I don't trust Jesus. I know I haven't put my faith in Jesus. I, I don't believe in him. Um, these elements are not for you. But this morning, what these elements represent, what they point to, is the real Jesus Christ. And so this morning, you're being off offered something so much better. This morning, if you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ himself opens his arms to you. Trust him, take him, receive him, and you will be saved. You will be acceptable before God. You will be attached vitally to the head who gives life in this world. But for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we look at these elements and we remember this morning that this isn't just a shadow. This is a foretaste. This is just a little appetizer of what we're going to experience in the new heavens and the new earth where we actually do sit down with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And guys, our song on that day is not going to be Jesus plus anything else. It's not going to be Jesus and my hard work. It's not going to be Jesus and my religious rituals. It's not going to be Jesus and my baptism. We're going to be singing Christ alone. Glory to the Lamb who was slain. Glory to the one who did it all. Glory to the one who in and of himself is completely enough. Glory to the one who on the cross said, it is finished. That's going to be our song. And so we look at these elements and we remember Jesus, fully sufficient, completely able to save to the uttermost. And just like he took the bread with his disciples and he held it up and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. This morning, we take and eat in remembrance of Jesus. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Take it and drink in remembrance of me. Take and drink. Lord God, this morning, we celebrate Jesus Christ, his fullness, his richness, that all the riches 
of knowledge and wisdom are found in him. Lord, this morning we cast away any addition, any tampering with the recipe of Jesus Christ plus nothing else. We want to be a church that stakes its claim on Christ alone. Lord, there's so many temptations to pull us away. There's so many temptations to believe that what Christ has done for us is not enough, that we need to add, that we need to put something on top, that we need to put the cherry, that there's something that we need to sprinkle on top of Jesus. And we just pray this morning, God, that you would remove all that from our hearts. Don't let us be bullied or tempted or pushed into thinking that we need anything other than Christ and Christ alone. God, we want to cling fast to our head. We want to hold fast to the one who pours his life down into his church. God, we thank you for an all-sufficient Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray.